This episode is powered by denmeditation.com with locations in Los Angeles that normalize meditation and make it available to all. Though meditation is the primary focus, the bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Hey guys, this is Tal and welcome to Den Talks, where I have conversations with people about their paths of self-discovery so you can pull inspiration for your own journey. Today I have the honor of talking with my dear friend Catherine Woodward Thomas, who you would know as the author of the famous book, Conscious Uncoupling, as well as a critically acclaimed book, Calling in the One. She's unbelievably transparent, not only in her writing, but also in this conversation. She shares with us the power of intention. I mean, she manifested her own husband and her daughter. And also how it means to like reconcile living in for your future self, but also doing it in the present moment. She also is tremendously shy and she really discusses that and how you can show up differently in your life than what you're habitually used to doing. Her brilliant words will give you a lot to ponder about relationships, how you can redefine who you are, and how you can start creating miracles for yourself. Make sure you stay tuned for Catherine's personal practice at the end of the podcast, where she's going to lead us in an intention-setting meditation. So we're here with Catherine Woodward Thomas, who is the author of Calling in the One and Conscious Uncoupling, um, and is now a dear friend of mine. So I feel very lucky to have you here. So thank you. Thanks, Tom. It's and nice. I want to start with Calling in the One, okay? A, because it was your first book, correct? Mm-hmm. And also, there's just such a great story behind it that I think is so surprising and so lovely. So can you talk a little bit about what inspired it? Of course. Well, you know, I... I didn't write Calling in the One until I was well into my 40s. And it was really based on my own miracle of creating this beautiful relationship after a lifetime of struggles. I had um, had a lot of, I was born to a mother who was barely out of her teenage years. I mean, she had just turned 18 when she gave birth to me. Um, it was back in the fifties, so abortion wasn't an option. It was a big trauma. She Thank had God. to get married to my father. They had a very contentious divorce. And I think just the the kind of complexities of all that kind of set me up in these really kind of toxic relational patterns, very, you know, toxic beliefs and toxic uh, ways of relating. So I had terrible patterns with men. So here I am, you know, doing a lot of spiritual work when I had a spiritual awakening when I was 14. Wow. Went to um, school, uh, became a, a singer, ended up forming a nonprofit to help people who are homeless, went back to graduate school to become a therapist. So there were all these places in my life where my life was really working and it was contributing. But the the patterns that I had with men were um, unavailable people. So like that was your married thing. men, engaged men, alcoholic men, commitment phobic men. I always like to joke and say gay men who wanted to explore right. adored me. Right. So anyone like, who just you knew was not sticking around. It just was just, you know, it was painful and confusing. So because I'd worked on myself for so long and I'd been in therapy for years. And here I am helping other people have great relationships. So it wasn't until did people ever question that? You know, in therapy, I'm, I don't do therapy anymore. I'm a, still a licensed therapist, but I do my own coaching model now. But in therapy, they have that kind of invisibility that therapists have. I mean, if you're really, 
you know, taking it to the extreme. If someone says, are you married? The answer, the proper answer of a therapist is, well, what would it mean to you if I was? And what would it uh, mean to you if I was? Like, should not matter. No transparency. Yeah. I mean, I think that's changing now. And that's an important piece of it, too, because when I wrote Calling in the One, so I'm skipping now to the, you know, to, the, to a few years later, when I wrote Calling in the One, I wrote it really from my own experience. And I was very transparent. And I had to fight with the book company because they kept saying, well, you're a therapist, you're an expert, you're not supposed to, you know, reveal so much about yourself. But now we understand that that's great we connect, because we yeah. need to model from each other. We learn from each other. So anyway, um, so when I was in my early 40s, I was discovering the power of intention. And uh, so I, I had one other failed love affair with a man I'd been dating for six months and had hoped it was different. And then he ended up asking someone else out on New Year's Eve. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was my clue. <laughs> on New Year's. So, but my response to that was to call a friend from this group where we've been setting intentions together. And I said, I'm going to set an outrageous intention to be engaged by my 42nd birthday, which was eight months out. And I had no prospects wow. for a husband. So it was a crazy thing. But she said something that really changed my whole life. She said, well, Catherine, I will hold that intention with you if you give me permission to hold you accountable for being the woman you would need to be in order for that to happen. Had you even ever thought about it that way? Well, I had been studying this idea of um, self as source. How are we the source of the patterns? And even though life feels like it's happening to us, how is it happening through us? So we were kind of in that conversation, but it was such a clear moment, right? I, in that moment, I just knew, okay, this is not about running out to try and find a husband. Right. This is about going within to discover all the barriers I've built against having love in my life. And once I began to be willing to be that authentic with myself and take that level of responsibility, I began to see very covert ways that there was a big part of me invested in sabotaging relationship. I didn't want to be hurt in the ways I'd been hurt in the past. I had made certain promises to people, you know, exes, former partners in my past that I was still kind of part of me was holding out hope, you know, and I'd made these promises, you're the great love of my life. So there were things that, that were felt dishonest to you and not have that happen. Yeah, they were anchoring me in the past. You know, we, we all have these intentions, you know, we get hurt and we make a promise to ourselves. okay, I'm never doing that again. Nobody is ever going to have that kind of access to hurt me like that. Or we make these kind of covert agreements with our mother. I'll be loyal to your unhappiness and love. I'll never be happier than you are. Or we decide that our sister is the beautiful one and we're just going to be the smart one because we don't want to. And you just play that role. And we play the role. But what happens is because those agreements that we make, whether we speak them out loud or just say them in our hearts, they actually serve as intentions. And we forget that we made them, but they begin on a covert level to inform every choice we make and every action we take. And that's so interesting because we hear so much. I mean, we talk a lot here about intention, manifestation, and it's so interesting to look at it from the non-intention intention. intention. So you don't even realize you're making this intention, but you are because you're putting this energy into it. So how do you recommend people even start to figure that out about themselves, the covert version? Well, I think, you know, it's interesting because we kind of are a culture that's very uh, psychologically savvy. 
So we know to go back in our past when we're having problems. We want to look at our childhood. We want to look at what happened. What are the traumas? You know, uh, what are the old beliefs that I'm kind of limited by? We, We know to do that. But when you really want to cause a miracle in your life, like you want to create something that's outside of your identity even to have. You know, when I grew up and I had this kind of turbulent background, how I internalized that is that men don't really value me because my father ended up leaving and I didn't see him again until I was an adult. So how I made meaning of that as a child is men don't really value me. They leave. So of course I would create drama as opposed to, you know, really make myself available to be loved because on a covert level, I have this belief. What caused me to be able to create a miracle of love that was outside of that story is that I stood for an unprecedented unpredictable future. This shall be so. I will be happy in love. I will create happy, healthy love. I will be married to a wonderful man who loves me, who's present for me, who gets me, who sees me, who supports me. That wasn't anything I'd ever had. Right? So so then what happens is when we stand for that kind of a future, it's really a stretch. And we have to then begin to connect with the self of that future and begin to identify with that self, and that will pull us into that future. So the two key questions are, what would I need to give up in order to be the woman I would need to be to have that happen? And what would I need to begin to cultivate and learn how to do? Right? Yeah. So inside of my old story, Maybe I self-abandoned a lot, right? Because other people didn't value me. So I thought that I had to overgive in order to prove my value, which of course, what does what? It teaches people to not value me. She doesn't value her time. She doesn't value what she's created. She's overgiving. I don't have to work very hard with her. So it literally ends up generating evidence of the old story, even though I'm doing everything I can to get out of that story. So what we have to do is then if you if you consider like who would I need to be in order to be engaged to like this wonderful man, well, I'd have to really know my value. Well, what would that look like? What would that feel like? What's really true about that story? Well, I have to go back to like the four-year-old self that the hard made part. that yes. story. And I need to say, sweetie, it's not true. This is what's really true. I think that those of us who do this kind of in-depth work, this kind of soul, spiritual work. We have access to different dimensions of ourselves. We meditate. We disidentify with our feelings, with our thoughts. These are practices we've been cultivating. So we can also drop down to who we are at the level of soul and say, wait a minute, what's true about that story? Because I've got a four-year-old in charge of my love life. Right. right? And you wonder how it's going. And, and who am I really? Like, who am I on the level of soul? Who am I here to be? What's the contribution I came here to make? Well, if I really look at it from that level, I know that like who I am is of tremendous value. I'm a leader. I have wisdom and a wealth of goodness to contribute to the world. And when I can stand in that center and feel it in my body, because it's actually the truth, I can then hold the four-year-old and I can say, no, honey, you made false meaning of what was happening. Your father, it wasn't that he didn't value you. It was just that he was immature. You know, he didn't know his own value. That's all that happened. It wasn't about you. It's never about us. So, but so we have to like course correct our own consciousness because wherever we're centered in consciousness is where we're generating our lives from. So I had this big story 
that I noticed when I was sitting on my meditation cushion, because I'm now open to inspiration, like where would I need to go? What would I need to do to have this miracle of love happen? Who would I need to be being? What would I give up and what would I cultivate? One of the things I saw that I needed to give up was this story I'd created about myself and all of the ways that I had kind of substituted drama for love because I was trying to prevent myself from getting hurt. And one of the things I needed to embrace was really owning the true goodness and the true value and worthiness to be loved. That was really the right, the true story about who I am. And then showing up from that center. So that's like a practice, like walk down the street, order your morning coffee from Starbucks from that center. Look people in the eye from that center. You have value. Because you begin to generate yourself from that center. And then the other piece of that is that in the old story, there are missing skills and capacities that we never developed. For example, if my story is I'm alone and other people always leave, and I might not have really learned the skills of resolving conflicts. I might avoid conflict like the play because to me the conflict's the beginning of the end. Right. So there's a conflict and I start then withdrawing my energy to covertly signal the other person, okay, who can go now because I'm assuming that it's, of course it's over they anyway. are. Yeah. And then I create evidence of that story outside of conscious awareness. So when we say, well, I'm not alone, we push back with the truth. I'm not alone. I came here to love and be loved. It's my destiny to be deeply related to not just one person, but a whole community of beloveds. And I have the capacity to learn how to deepen my relationships and, and, and create health and happiness over the long haul. I have that capacity. So from that place, then I go, oh, well, I better learn how to navigate conflict. Because without conflict and learning how to... And so how do you do that when you're not in a relationship? How do you start fixing that when there's no conflict at your disposal to work through? Well, there is with my mother or my sister or the person at the checkout counter or my best friend, because it's a deeper risk to tell the truth. And it's a deeper risk to be vulnerable and authentic. And that's really at the core of avoiding the conflict. Well, all of these ways of relating. Yeah. Right. And they're so habitual to us that we're confused. Why does it keep happening this way? And we start to think that it's our fate to be alone. So, I mean, the calling in the one process, which came out of this period, makes this very simple for people. It Which sounds is complex, but it's simple. But even in speaking about it, you're giving very clear steps. Yes. And that's unbelievable. And yes. But what's incredible is you are coming up with these steps for yourself. Like you walk through them. You weren't reading a book that told you to do this. You then created the book. No, I was just sitting on my meditation cushion right. and I was asking the question. But I find that any of the questions we ask the universe, like you, you will better get, get ready. Yeah, because they're <laughs> right. coming at you. I mean, there's two things that are going to happen. One, when you set an intention everything's going to start to turn to dust because, you know, Joseph Campbell said in destruction before creation, right? That's so, a very so, interesting point. So we have to even be in an empowered relationship when things start to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Things that are not healthy, um, people that are, you know, kind of acting out old patterns with jobs that are kind of locking in your poverty consciousness or that are toxic in some way, all those things start to go away. And then the other thing is learning how to you know, recognize um, 
ourselves as the source of our experience and really be in this inquiry and ask life. And we'll start to get a lot of feedback and a lot of clarity on that. So what happened? So you... You so, started doing this work. Well, exactly. And I'm sitting there. And every time I would get some, this is the other thing I did differently. If I saw something, I would not go into analyzing it more, which is what we do a lot. Especially, I'm sure, in your career. I know. people. We all, we're all so... I'm an analyzer, too. We are so sophisticated this <laughs> way. We want to analyze, analyze, analyze. But I would give up the right to show up that way, and I would try on a way of showing up that was outside of who I've known myself to be. Interesting and difficult. It's again, it's it's because I'm anchored into the future self. Who would I need to be? Which version of me would I need to grow into in order to be deeply happy in love and to graduate from my patterns, my painful patterns in love that I inherited or you know made up or created when I was young? So I'm doing this for a few weeks, and one morning I'm sitting on the meditation cushion, and I start to get the image of this man I had dated six years before, who I had not seen or spoken to in all that time, and who I had always thought of as the one that got away. And I have this really strong feeling like I should call him, look him up and call him. And it's the first thing I did not do. Everything else I did. I get this impression, you know, change the art on your walls. Clean out your closet, make space in your closet, stay home on Saturday and journal about this question. I get, you know, and look, it was it God speaking to me? Was it my higher self? I don't know, but it was like it it was productive and it was helpful. So I just followed it. I just followed it. I decided to empower my instincts in that direction. This is the one thing I didn't do. (laughs) And two weeks later, I went to a church service at the Agape Church. At Mm -hmm. that time, I'd been going there for about 10 years. I'd never seen this man there. His name is Mark. And lo and behold, there he is across the parking lot. So in six years, you've never seen him since that day. No, it was the first time I'd seen him in six years. And I have a shy attack. So I look the other way. And by the time I gather my courage, he was gone. So by now, it's the end of March. My birthday's August. I'm getting impatient and restless. And I call up one of my friends from this group and I say, you know, he's late. Where is he? He's late. (laughs) (laughs) And she said, you need to get on the internet. Go on to, you know, there's this site where people are looking for. Now, this was the beginning Beginning, of internet dating. No pictures. Oh, wow. No pictures. They should go back to that. No pictures. They, you know, they should. They really there should. There was something really great about well, yeah, that. Because you're, you're connecting not on the physical I, in, initially. You're absolutely right. Because what I did is I responded to something that this man said. So there was a quarter of a million people on this site, and I only responded to one person. Wow. And when he wrote me back the next day, he wrote from his own email address, because that was the technology back then. And his name was in parentheses next to his email address and his it was mark that's crazy Isn't that crazy no that's crazy i know it's it's insane so then and then we were engaged 2 months before my birthday now, have you told, now at this point, have you told him about this? Like does he feel like there's a timeline he's working up against? Yes, cuz i actually <laughs> told him on the first time we got together i said you know i'm doing I, I'm in this commitment. I'm really looking for my life partner. Doesn't mean it's you. Right. I mean, I'm so happy to see you again. But, you know, I just want to let you know that that's kind of the stage I mean, of life. Yeah. So I'm not really interested in anything casual. But, but did you tell him, bef- like, in a, I made this thing that before my 40, 42nd birthday, right? Yes, before my 40- I told him I was very transparent about it. 
But in a way, it was great because now, then he said, well, it gave me like instructions. Yeah. And <laughs> like, it made, what him, I made him start paying attention. Am I into it? Am I not? Is this working? Is it not? No dilly dallying. Let's go. Yeah, no I dilly dallying. And then we gave birth to our daughter when I was 43. So that. And was that, I mean, tell yeah, me if this was too personal. Was that no, easy for you? Nothing's too personal. That was another manifestation from using these same principles. Because when I realized I wanted to create a child, I began to imagine what it must feel like to hold a child in my body, to be pregnant. And I even even got this little um, stuffed animal and buckled the stuffed animal in the seatbelt in the back so that in traffic, I would, you know, in the traffic lights, when I had a moment, I would turn around and I would talk to the stuffed animal. Did you ever give the stuffed animal sex or gender? No, I didn't. But the one thing that I did that was crazy outrageous, I'm not going to, don't, I'm going to tell people, <laughs> don't, do okay, don't, don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. I love that you're telling but, us. But it's a, but it's a principle that I live by and I'm, I'm pretty comfortable in it. So I, I can do it, but I don't want everybody else to do this. But I had a job. I was the clinical director in a day center that served people who were homeless. So it was kind of a check your weapons at the door kind of place. It was rough. And so I was in charge of all the case managers and I did therapy with some of the people and I loved my job. And after I made this intention, I set an intention to get pregnant and have a child. And I walked into this facility and I realized in that moment that it was so stressful that I probably wouldn't get pregnant if I was working there. So I went to my boss and I gave my two-week notice. Wow. <laughs> right? No, but I mean, you really, you I were living live, your future self. That's how I live. I live into the future. I can sense the future. I stand for the future. I organize all of my choices and all of my actions around that future to the best of my ability. And then how do you reconcile that with the present moment and all in like spirituality and consciousness of people saying live in the present moment? How do you oh, reconcile that's beautiful. those? to how do you reconcile that? Yeah, that's a beautiful one. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, my spiritual orientation is on uh, evolutionary spirituality, which is really, I think the idea that life is ever evolving and that we are a part of that evolution. And so I think we're all feeling a lot of urgency right now. So I am very future oriented, not like I'm living in the future, Mm -hmm. but I recognize that we have an opportunity to influence the future. Interesting. So I see it as a great privilege and a great joy to, you know, volunteer to be steering the ship in some directions. And I do see it as a responsibility uh, of my own consciousness to keep my consciousness aligned with the future where I'm going. And I think also being responsible for your own self. It is being responsible for myself, but I will tell you, I'm telling you these two personal miracles um, because then I just got pregnant naturally, by the way. And, no, and I want to remind people at this point, you're 43. Yeah, I was 43. Just because, I mean, it really is having struggled myself through yeah. it. It's, and I was much younger than that. It's a, it's hard as a woman to do that 43 easily. It happens, but it's I not always not easy. I did not even do the temperature thing or I mean, the food just, thing. I just did it in consciousness. But here's the, here's the responsibility to let, to understanding these, these spiritual laws of manifestation is that it's wonderful to apply them to our own lives. But any of us who are born at this particular time have volunteered to be here at a very critical and pivotal point in our collective evolution. And the technology of being able to stand for a future and begin living into who would I need to be, who would we need to be being to manifest that future is ours as it, re- as it relates to the world. 
Hey guys, we wanted to announce our next Dent Talks Live. So again, if you're liking these episodes and you want to actually see it in person and then you get a chance to have Q&A and talk to people, our next one is December 8th. It's going to be a panel. We have four incredible guests. It's called How to Be Your Own Guru because I feel like we get a lot of that. How can I figure out what's right for me and all this noise? And so we're going to talk to all of these people who come at it from religion, travel, career shifts, spirituality, how they decided like what works for them, what their spiritual path should be in a world full of so much noise. So some of the panelists are going to be Muhammad al-Samawi. He was raised in Yemen to a devout Muslim family. He started questioning his religious beliefs early, which led to death threats. He actually fled hoping to save his family, but he fled right into the heart of the civil war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Honestly, through just some faith and through Facebook, who knew, he put some flyers out there and some people from different countries actually saved him. So he was always challenging spirituality from a young age and religion. We have Chandrish Bardwatch, who is one of our teachers. He was on the podcast himself. He is incredible. He wrote an entire book about this, Break the Norms. He comes from a whole spiritual lineage of gurus, and he actually chose to take a whole different path until he ended up back to where he needed to be, but he did it the way he needed to do it, even though people might have disapproved. We have Jordan Taylor Wright coming on as well. He's a young creative director and filmmaker. He has worked with the best of them, literally with J-Lo and Usher, Justin Bieber, but he has chosen to walk this path differently. It's so easy to succumb to the world of entertainment and money and drugs and partying. And he is just such a steady path of spirituality and who he is. And he always has been that way. So he has some really interesting things to share. And then rounding it out is Cassandra Bodzak. She is a nutritionist and author. Her book just came out. She's incredible. It's all about eating with intention and how you have to figure out the nutrition and what is right for you. Once again, in a world with so many people telling you, you have to eat this or eat that, she is all about figuring out what works for your body. So again, this is an incredible panel. It's going to be live. There's going to be a book signing afterwards. They each have a book. So please come. And again, a chance to do a Q&A, have personal practices with them. And to hear how all of them, no matter what they were told and disapprovals and different perspectives, how they all figured out what works for them and to give you guys tips on how to figure out how to be your own guru. How would you compare some of this to when The Secret came out? Because I know there's always a lot of discussion of people who are a little anti-secret, not to put you there, you don't have to say that, or people, what's the difference? Well, I think that this, I think this conversation about the implications of recognizing our capacity for manifestation is actually a moral one. This, this one that I'm saying, what's our moral obligation? If I am God, what is the responsibility of being God? Yes. Right? Basically. And I know a lot of our new age philosophies are, you know, recognizing that I am divine. Well, that's not just for my own personal pleasure. We are a collective. There's responsibility. In there is. One. And I think that we're, we're one of the first generations to not necessarily be living for future generations. So it's something that we have to be conscious of. I think in our collective development, we have really needed to form a, a cohesive self. We needed to come out of kind of being merged with the community and who I am belongs to the community. And so we've gone through a phase where we've begun to define ourselves. We've begun to think for ourselves back in the 60s. We rebelled against absolute more morality that was handed to us, and now we have more relative morality where we're, you know, checking in with ourselves. But that selfness, that self-focus, has now become a little bit uh, tended towards collective narcissism. So our obligation is to begin to think collectively for the good of the children who are here and the children who have yet to be born whether they come through our bodies or they come through the bodies of other people and begin to live into the future generations. And I think where a hundred years ago, some people were building railroads for the collective, the future generations. We are now 
creating more maturity and consciousness. That's interesting. So, so I, lo- I love the comparison of rail- railroads and consciousness. There's still pathways that, and it's still transportation is, in some ways. So. It is. It's, trans- it's yeah. beautiful. So it's, that's our work to do. So when you talk about The Secret, what The Secret did is it popularized some of these ideas. Um, I think it was the filmmaker who left out the more sophisticated parts of the conversation. Um, I believe Michael Beckwith probably had a lot more to say than what Rhonda chose to feature. Um, But, you know, it did introduce a lot of people to the ideas. I think more good came of it than not. Um, There were certain things that were said that were kind of, you know, pretty self-absorbed. I visioned that house and then I got that house. So isn't like wonderful. So I think we have to just be a bit more sophisticated. And about what you are, what your intention. Yeah, what is. We're, we're up to, what our souls, you know, decided to incarnate for and what we're really here to create and to cause. I think, you know, when I did that, when I created that miracle in my own love life, I recognized that was not a personal miracle. That's why I started teaching Calling in the One. And I never really intended to uh, initially to write that into a book. Um, but one person started to ask me to write it down and then one foot in front of another. Someone asked my friend, but it is a manual, which is so great. I mean, yeah. not, it, that's amazing. And it works for people. people. Yeah. And so it's been a bestseller for 13 years. And that's, and congratulations. That I mean, that's amazing. That means it has its own life, yeah, it which has, is incredible. Yeah. Well, books are like children. They really do. So how, so how long were you guys married for? We were married for 10 years. Which is also a very successful marriage, I consider. Thank you very much. But you know, our collective consciousness is really inside of happy ever after. And um, so when I realized that Mark and I were going to get divorced, I mean, by this time, the, you know, calling is what's a bestseller. I have thousands right, so of students. So how do you students. grapple with that? Oh, no, it was, I mean, really seriously, when I realized we were getting divorced, I went to the park and I looked up at the sky and I said, you have got to be, to be kidding, kidding me. me. Seriously, like, what are you thinking? You know, I said this to the universe, like, seriously. And it, I mean, no matter how conscious or aware you are, that is hard to deal with. That is just some ego stuff. That is difficult. It was. But, you know, I, I, I think that what has come out of that because you didn't know. so you miraculous. Didn't... I had no idea that conscious uncoupling was going to be born out of the very conscious and beautiful way that Mark and I uncoupled and transitioned into what we call our happy ever or our happy even after family. And I've seen you two together. It really, yeah, yeah I mean, have. I met him. It's, it really is. You'd never guess that you, it's just, you guys are just so easy together. Yeah. It's really nice. Yeah. It's so, sweet. but talk about that. So when you guys were going through your divorce, was that just naturally happening that way? Or was this something you really thought about before you took the steps? Or did you just, or was it kind of hindsight you looked back and said, wow, we really did this consciously? You know, I have to say, I think that when we married, he was the best person in this world for me. I'm very clear about that. What happened in the marriage, my life worked so well in the marriage inside of the container of being so loved and supported. I started to create and I started to go to the next version of really who I knew myself to be and I mean, your books contribution. Have come from that. Yeah. So um, I got, I started teaching really thousands of people. I mean, there was a point where I was teaching virtually. I had 2,000 students coming to me a week for different classes that were happening. I mean, that's a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> and this was happening for year after year after year. And what's probably a lot of people don't realize, like every time you do that, even though it's virtual, you're giving part of yourself every single time. I was thrilled. I was honored. It was such a joy. It was such the fulfillment of 
um, my devotion and what I wanted to do. When I was 19 years old, I was in Bible college because I was a born-again Christian back then. And I was praying every day, please use my life. Please use my life. I mean, I would like weep in the chapel. So, And then after that, my life went just south. I turned, you know, when it <laughs> gained 50 pounds, my boyfriend married somebody else. My parents <laughs> threw me out of the house. My best friend betrayed me. I mean, it was just like Oof. disaster. And at the time, I thought that, oh, life is abandoning me. And, you know, none of my prayers worked. But by, but it forced me to work on myself for years, like really like my full-time job through 12-step programs and therapy and transformational workshops and healing modalities, like anything and everything. You, and you really did have so much thrown at you. It's almost as if you were being primed to understand that and everyone else. Well, that's in, what ended up happening. And I created this nonprofit where I went down to write songwriting workshops with people who were you know, getting off the streets. I was a singer-songwriter. I wasn't even a therapist then. And I love how much you just, the, you're, you're everything. <laughs> but the things that I was just intuitively saying to them, I'd come back week after week and their lives were like changing radically. And it was that moment that I had this epiphany and I thought, because this is like 12 years later, right? And I thought, oh my gosh, that wasn't life abandoning me. That was the answer to my prayer. That was answered prayer. So then there was a transmission, and I intuitively knew how to help people change their lives. So that's why I went back to graduate school, just to get the credentials and the training. To be able to do it. For what was unquote, kind officially. of. Officially. Yeah. Yeah, officially. So, um, so I forget. So, so then we were, so we were talking yeah, yeah. about, so when did you consciously create consciously, un, consciously uncoupling? Conscious uncoupling. Conscious uncoupling. I know now I'm mixing all my well, words. While you were splitting with Mark. Oh, so this is what I wanted to say though, because you asked me, did you know, and how did that happen? So here I am teaching all these people and Mark is taking care of the baby. And, and how old home. is she at this point? You know, she's like two, she's three, she's four, she's five. She's six. <laughs> right. And I'm like out doing my thing. And what happened is I allowed too much space to grow between us. Now I can see that now. So I'm always learning still, right? We all are. We're all learning. Yeah. I just, there's so much that's coming out now about attachment theory and how much when we're in relationships that we're committed to, we have to generate, including our partners in what we're doing. So I basically just kind of outgrew the marriage and left him. I mean, it, it was mutual because he wasn't all that interested. I mean, he was supportive. But he wasn't interested. It's, it's not what he signed up for. It was, wasn't really yeah. what he was lit him up. And he ended up finding his own beautiful path in Buddhism. Now he's a teacher in Buddhism. So it's funny the question you asked, but what's the tension between being in the now or generating the future and being in the future? Like, who would I need to be being? Because Mark is like all about being in the now. <laughs> and right. There is no, right. And you were, you that's know. interesting, actually. So it is. And, and so I love him. And But at some point we said, you know, I think it's going to be better if we transition because our marriage has, is not the best container for each of us. So how would we do that in a way that would have our daughter be happy and well and not lose connection with one of us or not be caught in a war zone or not even be caught in covert tensions? Like who, who would we need to be in this divorce to, to dissolve any tensions, to create kindness, to create cohesive sense of family, even though we're changing forms. And, and was that done like literally in conversation? Like, would you guys actually sit down and talk about this stuff or did it naturally? It naturally happened. Um, I was the one that chose out of the marriage. So I had to have a lot of respect for his process. And what we did is we just went into a more formal way of being and we took on a practice of profound generosity. 
So it was the generosity that really created this new culture between us. And I think Mark started it when we were sitting in the mediator's office, um, calling the royalties for calling. And the one came up because I wrote that book in the marriage. And um, Mark surprised us both. He said, I don't want any part of the royalties. That was Catherine's book. I saw how hard she worked for that. She deserves to have all the royalties. That is so kind and so generous. In today's day and age, it usually it really there's so much is. anger that usually takes over and that you can't see clearly or you can't remember why you like the person in the first place a lot of times. Well, and that's so bad for the, not only the children, but it's, it bodes poorly for our um, ability to create love in the future. There's a lot at stake. You know, relationships, um, Merritt Malloy said, relationships that do not end peacefully do not end at all. That's right, because there's no closure. There's no closure, and we'll carry that person for months, years, decades. I always say, similar but not as eloquent, I'm always like, the emotion of hate is very similar to the emotion of love. It's you're putting so much out there that there's no detachment. It's you're you're even though you might dislike someone, you're paying just as much of attention and just as integrated with that person as if you love them. Yeah. So it is. It's like well, you can't we go move from on. this soulmate to soul hate. Oh, so fast. And um, one of the things I say about that is, as I was researching breakups and what happens in the body. We human beings, as much as we like to think of ourselves as being very independent and self-sufficient, thank you very much. We are (laughs) actually designed to need each other. We regulate each other's biology. We regulate each other's emotional well-being. So when we have what psychologists call a rupture of attachment, it's actually very traumatic. And I was researching this, and when I my theory of it is that the soulmate to soul hate phenomenon is nature's trick to keep us bonded, because, because what it nature would keep, it keeps rather, you together. That's right. Yeah, it does. It keeps you very highly engaged with that person. So nature would rather we hate each other than let each other go. Because we're still attached. But you know, if you, it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, because yeah. like a thousand years ago, if you wandered away from your tribe, you were going to die. Yeah. You so have to stay close. We are you designed to bond. We are not designed to separate. So when I was talking before about our obligation to begin to cultivate certain capacities in consciousness, to begin to live into the future that we would like to, to, to leave to future generations, this capacity to separate with love is an emergent capacity. It's not something we do automatically. So even though we might want to separate amicably. It doesn't come naturally. It does not come naturally. So when did you find, and I'm, at this point you were still practicing therapy, right? You were seeing clients at this point or? Well, at some point I started, I mean, I had so many students. I just went into teaching and I also train coaches so that I, I lead communities where I'm doing ongoing development of coaches. So I sometimes have a little tiny private practice on the side, but not always. So when did you... When did it go from how you were living your life and how you guys chose to split up to, I think people need to know this? Well, I, the, re, the way conscious uncoupling was, the term was coined, was in my kitchen with a dear friend named Kit Thomas. And we were both talking about our conscious divorces. And he actually said, yes, it's just kind of a conscious uncoupling. And the moment it came out of his mouth, I said, Kit, that's a book. And that's a whole program. Do you want to write it with me? And he said, no, go make something beautiful of it. And I went and I got the URL that afternoon and I started creating the Conscious Uncoupling online program. But it wasn't for two, I think three years after I created it and launched it that Gwyneth Paltrow heard about it through a mutual colleague and popped it into the lexicon. 
And, and then I mean, and then the rest you know, is history. I mean, it blew up. It was insane. <laughs> it I mean, blew you up. literally are now you're part of Lexicon, like you said. It's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah. And so, and then you were already, but you were already in the process of writing the book before. I had been actually when she popped that into the Lexicon. I was writing. Uh, this is another funny story. I was writing the um, the uh, book proposal. And I was not enjoying the process because book proposals are different than the, writing the book. So every time I'd go to write, the book would come out of me. And the I was proposals were so hard. frustrated writing <laughs> this proposal. So I started to pray and I said, God, can you please get me out of having to write this proposal? <laughs> <laughs> Future, I like it. And then she popped that into the lexicon and I basically flew to New York from Costa Rica where I was on my writing retreat to be on the Today Show, went over to Harmony Books at Random House, and that afternoon they gave me a book deal, so I didn't have to So you didn't have to write the proposal. Thank you, Gwyneth. (laughs) That's amazing. And so it is interesting that you've now written a book about finding a relationship. I'm sure you get this question all the time. You've written a book about finding a relationship and a book on how to end the relationship, but not one how to be in a relationship. Well, that's my next one, so I'm working on that. You are working on it. I'm working on it. So I'm in the research stage right now, and... uh, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm very um, excited by the opportunity to evolve the conversation forward, because there are certain things in the collective and how we think about, you know, couples together and how couples are working together that I, of course, have tremendous love and respect for, but also disagree with certain things and certain ideologies, certain ideas. What's an obvious one you disagree with? Well, the obvious one is this idea that we repeat old wounds, old dynamics, because we're trying to quote unquote heal. Because I personally have never known anyone who has repeated the same pattern, like, oh my gosh, I'm with a narcissist again, or I've been, you know, abused again, and found that to be a healing experience. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it goes against kind of what you have in finding the one. Well, about really learning how well, to your recognize your Well, your stuff will come and- up, and we do repeat patterns. I mean, all of psychology was founded on Freud's awareness of the repetition, what he, what he coined to be the repetition compulsion, that we tend to recreate in our adult lives the same things, same traumas that were happening when we were younger. And I think we all feel a little victimized by that. Like, oh my God, I did all that therapy and here I am with my, you know, this critical narcissist again. You know, how did I do that? Well, so I think that the reason, one of the reasons we do that, and we could unpack that in a whole nother conversation, (laughs) but one of the core reasons is because when we came to the conclusions that we came to in our childhoods and say, we're with that narcissistic parent, so the conclusion, the self-sense that would form in response to that would be an invisibility. And with that narcissistic parent, that's the only way to survive. So invisibility became my home base. And then if you grow into an adult and, you, and, you, and that's your strategy for relationship, you're going to train people that you don't have any feelings, you don't have any needs that it's all about them because your first attention is always on them. So you train them that theirs should be too. (laughs) And, um, and how you're internalizing that is that, well, they don't really care about me and it's even dangerous for me to be visible. So we're recreating mostly because we lack the skills to create a healthier dynamic, right? So we lack the skills to even know what I'm feeling, to know what I'm needing, to make that visible to someone else in a way that would allow them to find their way into my world where they could begin to meet my needs. But we all know that that's what healthy relating is. There's a 
full self to a full self. Both people have their feelings and needs. And we now know that secure attachment is about engagement and caring about each other's feelings and reaching for each other, responding to each other's feelings, responding to each other's needs. So that's one of them. I also don't quite agree with the idea uh, necessarily that um, we are responsible for, for helping our partner to heal their core wounds only because, oh, you're shaking. No, your I agree now. with you on that. Because then what ends up happening is it, it, you can hold each other hostage forever to the four-year-old that's like never going to feel loved enough. And I think that there's a way to do that where we each have to recognize our own false stories mm-hmm. and the mechanisms of how we are the source of evidence for those stories. And we become partners in awakening each other to power center, living from the deeper truth of who we are. Yeah, no, that I agree with. But you're right. That is that will shift people's perspective. Yes. Are you in a relationship currently? You know, I'm dating right now and I have I have a, a, a lovely man who's like, I don't know if you, if you I'm dating several lovely people. I love that. I like, <laughs> you know, one man that things developing with. But, you know, I take my time now because I know what I need and I know what I'm committed to. And so I really want to make sure that my next relationship is pretty founded on those same values and that same vision. And do you feel like now that you're dating again, after having been in a relationship for a long time, does calling in the one still resonate with you as truth? I love calling in the one. I love it because calling in the one comes down basically to five principles. The first one is live from a place of intention. Be aware of what you're, what you're committed to creating and to begin to use that intention as the North Star of your life so that you're measuring your choices and your actions according to that and you're living in integrity with that vision. The second thing that calling in the one does is it helps us to step out of victimization to really see ourselves as the source of our stories. And that's going to require us to give up you know, this, this victimized, I'm only single because there's no good men out there, or I'm only, you know, greedy and nasty because my former husband is attacking me or, you know, so there's this, there are two parts to that. One is the willingness to see like, okay, who was I being that that person behaved that way, but also who will I choose to be in the face of that person? you know, behaving that way because we can't control other people. Right. The third one is to relate to all breakdowns as an opportunity to grow so that the relationship to the breakdowns, how is this working for me as opposed to against me? What can I learn? What am I being given the opportunity to develop in this? What's the feedback so I can learn this lesson? The, The next one is also something we don't talk about enough, which is to be present to your breakthroughs and to see how you're the source of those two. And to begin to identify how you were showing up differently that allowed the breakthrough to occur and begin to practice that such that it becomes your new norm. Interesting. It's like, give yourself a little credit. Yeah, because sometimes, (laughs) you know, we, we look at how we're the source of a breakdown. But then we attribute the breakthrough to a lucky day. And when we do that, we don't make that our new norm. It becomes the exception. So usually there's something that we did, even if it's as simple as I looked someone in the eye and I told the truth, or I showed up on time 
or I returned the call, or I reached out right. to that but person I when I was upset, as opposed to withdrew to defend myself. It's just some some of the things that change our lives the most are the very subtle ways of relating that are that will generate a whole different future. And then the last one is to learn how to ask ourselves empowered questions when we're going to self-reflect on how we are the source of our experience. A lot of times when we, you know, have a disappointment and we go to, you know, we'll initially blame someone else. But if we go to take personal responsibility, we'll ask a shame-based question such as, what's wrong with me? Right. Why can't I ever get this right? How come other people get to have love and I don't get to have love? So we're asking ourselves questions that are never going to further the conversation. They're keeping us stuck. And so we need to ask questions that are going to really foster wisdom and growth and help us to become a better version of ourselves. How did I give my power away? What was motivating me to do that? What could I do differently in the future? What's really true about my value and my worth? If I were going to stand in that center and that truth, how would I be showing up differently? How might I have convinced someone that I didn't have value? These are you know, what are the subtle things that I did that caused my old story to repeat? And what could I do differently in the future? These are self-empowering questions. So empowering, yeah. yeah. And you're really putting someone in the driver's seat, which I think change, is very different for a lot of people. A lot of people yeah. are reactive and that's yeah. incredible. So how I want to go to one subject of when you talk about kind of evolutionary consciousness and yeah. being able to kind of control your future. What do you do in moments where the future then becomes your present and really surprises you. So for instance, I know you've, you know, I don't know how you like to say it, but battled cancer yourself. What do you do with that? I mean, was that like a curveball for you, well, especially that, in your world of spirituality? That was a wild story. I was, um, I was writing Conscious Uncoupling. They initially gave me four months to write it because it was all over the news and they wanted to capitalize. Move quickly. Now, my last book took almost two years to write, just to give you a sense right. of writing. Calling in the one was two years. So four months was pretty fast. So I was pretty consumed by it. And about six weeks in, I got diagnosed with stage two breast cancer. So that was a huge surrender because the first treatment that because of the kind of cancer I want to do was was chemotherapy. And you get something called chemo brain. So you can't. You can't write when you're in chemo, yeah, you're right? Just feeling horrible. But I will tell you that, um, you know, this is a very, this isn't, I don't know how to translate. I haven't talked about this a lot yet because I can't, I haven't been able to translate into practices for other people yet, which is I tend to not talk about myself until I do. Until you but feel like you can sir, give it with service. Yeah, so well, let's talk about us, it not with that in mind. Okay, but I mean, I can just you. tell you what happened. Yeah, let's talk about us friends. But, I, but maybe this is the practice. So I have, um, I have, obviously a way of doing life in relation in, in relationship with the greater field of life. I listen. I ask and I listen. And when you live that way, we become mystics. We open up that part of ourselves. So there's an, uh, an awareness of where we are and where we stand and where our next steps need to be. So within a day of getting the diagnosis, I was meditating and what I heard loud and clear is this cancer is going to be a hiccup. Wow. You're not going to die from this. You're going to be fine. And it's and and you set it up. Now, whether this is true or not, I don't know. I'm just telling you what I felt, and it felt true. 
You set this up, Catherine, before you incarnated because you knew you were coming into a very difficult life situation that was extremely painful on an emotional level. And it would have been a kind early exit had you not become who you are. But you have chosen love so many thousands of times that you, this, this cancer now will just wash through you. So it's so interesting. So it was your life contract that you made before yeah. you came in. Yeah. And by how you move through your life, it's changed. It still existed, but the, the outcome of it changed. Well, and then it became a catalyst for greater levels of integrity because it not only, so my mother was a terrible mother when I was young. I mean, she'll tell you, she was, it's like her biggest regret. She was, oh. you know, she was just, <laughs> she was so young. She was young. She yeah, just she didn't know. know. She was confused. So she was a terrible mother and she didn't mother me and she resented that I was born. So she didn't want to mother me. So when I got cancer, the thing that happened is she flew out every time I got chemo. Or, she wanted to be your mother. And she was there for me. And, and when you get chemo, like you're just lying on bed for hours thirsty, like you can't even get up and get a glass of water. So she was, right there and she got to redo this kind of helpless moment like if I was a baby and that's when you needed it too and I needed her to do and it just was so lovely and when you were able I mean did you have a lot of resentment towards your mom I think by that time I had worked through a lot of it worked through a lot of it yeah but I think it's not so much you know, we resent our parents to the extent that we can't overcome the legacy of what ha- what we internalized from their behavior. You catching that? I do, and I actually have never looked at it that way. I've always kind of thought about it more. You resent them until you can accept them and love them. But I think it's so interesting. You're making it more because we are going back to the narcissistic society. It's a little bit. Well, if I keep, if I keep, you know, if my mother was narcissistic and then I keep dating narcissists and I can never get my feelings and needs met, it's always about them. Yeah. Like I'm stuck in that story. That's where I resent my mother. So it means that it's easy to blame someone else versus ever take responsibility for it yourself. Right. Well, I'm, that's the key is the willingness to be responsible. You know, I'm not the source of these patterns. I didn't create these patterns. They're not my fault, but they are mine to evolve. They are mine and I take responsibility for them. So what a beautiful opportunity you guys. I mean, and I've seen you with your mom too. You guys are clearly very close. So that's actually lovely to have that time. So when you first got diagnosed, I, I mean, it's amazing that within 24 hours you had that meditation. What was that initial reaction? Was there fear? Was there a moment or was there always a sense of calm in it? I think I always felt calm in it. I just felt, I felt calm. It was like, I just, but you know, what was so beautiful. I kind of disidentified. I mean, you know, you lose your hair, you get super gaunt. I mean, you know, feeling well, you can't work anymore. I mean, it's like, it it takes over. I had to stop writing the book. So it was this um, wild experience though, Tom, because I went into joy. Like I disidentified with my personality self and I just, completely surrendered. And I, and I took place, I took part in this study too, where they were measuring your mood. And of course they had, you know, you're angry, you're upset, you're scared, you're terrified, you're you're anxious, you're depressed, you're, you know, and I kept calling them and saying, you don't have the right feelings on this chart because I'm joyful. I'm grateful. Now I wish I could say that I was enlightened like that all the time, you know, (laughs) 
because that was like, there was something about the severity of the experience and knowing that I wasn't going to die on the other side. And I think it was also a gift that conscious uncoupling had just gone out into the lexicon. And I knew I would come out of the chemo and write the rest of the book and that it would be successful. So I had this amazing kind of unusual experience where I was able to trust the experience. You were feeling very secure. I felt secure. Which is a lovely feeling no matter where you are in your life. So yeah. that's, I think that's, I actually can't wait to see what you come up for this because it'll be, I think, probably very helpful for a lot of people going through it. Yeah. I want to, I want to actually identify the practices. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, you that, clearly have a very different perspective than most people do yeah. when they go through it. So, Well, I think just not having fear for the whole thing. Which is so difficult for some, I mean, that's a hard thing to remove fear. That's the worst part. I mean, yeah. we talk a lot here how fear is the paralyze. It paralyzes you in so many you ways. Know, it's interesting. If I really look at it, it's like the, the way that I had been living for so long was what allowed me, I think, to just kind of pop into that level of faith through the entire experience. But I think, look, the other perspective I got tall is like, oh, we're all dying. Like people would say to me, I'm so sorry you have cancer. And I felt like saying to them, I'm so sorry that you're dying too. You know, it's like it woke me up to how temporary this ride is. And that it, for all of us. For all of us. It's we're all just shooting stars. And, and I think the whole thing is about just making the world as beautiful and loving a place as we can make it. You know, this is, this is the ride. So be bold and be brave and love big and forgive hard you know it's like then it's over right so make it make it count <laughs> make I mean, it it's count that old, yeah make it we're count. part of we're the part of the chain of human evolution and the, and do our let's do our best just like you know our great 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 grandmothers did when they you know didn't eat so that the kids could eat you know what's so fascinating to. about you also that I, maybe a lot of people don't know or maybe they do I mean, you've said, what was it, 14? You said you asked for a life of service, basically make my life count. I was 19. 19. I, had a, I had a spiritual awakening at 14. Right. Spiritual awakening at 14, 19 clarity of you wanted your life to count. That's a big deal. At 19, most of us are like, does this makeup look good? And what can I do with my hair? And very me, me, me and trying to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And you've created that. Like you said, you've taken so many things that have happened in your life. You've given people tools and manuals. You've done so many live speaking engagements and seminars and classes. I mean, it, it, it goes on and on that you are not only a vessel, but a, a teacher in, in the flesh, but you're very shy. Yes. I am. Like very shy. And I remember yeah. learning that about you. And yeah. so how, how do you reconcile that? Cause it's so interesting. I mean, you said to the point, sometimes it's paralyzing. Yeah, like yeah. it really does. It's not like, Oh, I'm a little shy, but I've learned. I mean, it's a big deal for you. And you yeah. kind of hinted at it too when you first saw Mark again, how you had a shy attack and then he walked away because yeah. he didn't see you. Yeah. Um, so A, I'm curious about the first time you had to public speak and how have you overcome that? And how does it still, is it still the same feeling today as it was before or? It's, no, it's not. It's much better. But you know, when it really hit me, I mean, I have a background in acting and cabaret singing. And so I was and used I to this. being I need to see you cabaret sing. That's for sure. <laughs> Thank you. So there was a part of me that could perform, right? But um, I think the shyness really hit me when Calling in the One became a national bestseller four months after publication. And suddenly I was in, in the, the spotlight. Yeah. And, um, 
And so I was very confronted by that. And it actually took me several years to adjust to that. And one of the things that I used, I think really helped me to overcome that was the commitment that I had to contribute to people because I had to have that be bigger than my shyness. But I will say that for the first few years, I would get off, you know, we did, we did, um, my, my teaching partner of the time, Claire Zamet and I launched this um, program called Women on the Edge of Evolution. And it was right before all the summits really kind of flooded the marketplace. Yeah. So we were right at the beginning and Claire wrote some, you know, languaged the summit beautifully in a way that really struck a chord and it went viral and a hundred thousand women signed up. A few men too, but mostly women. And so here we were thrust into the spotlight all of a sudden with this conversation, which is, you know, what's our role in forwarding the evolution of consciousness and culture as women? We had a wonderful women speakers, but I used to get off and the, the series was great, but I used to get off every call, like mortified, like, oh my gosh, I'm full <laughs> of myself. I said the wrong thing. So I had to really like go through the shyness and what kept bringing me back to the microphone was the was the commitment that I had to what we had to say and for all of us and it was that commitment that kept me going and kept pushing me out there more and more and now now I've kind of disappeared the conversation I, I it's it's there a little bit on a social level well, I was just about does, to ask that. Yeah. on a social level it's it comes still out. there yeah it's do you still ever there. feel misunderstood do people like have preconceived notions about you because of the shyness do you find that sometimes it's hard for people to get to know you i think so a little bit yeah there is a when i you know when you step into i think we're all maybe like that when we step into our spiritual power you know something takes over and we're in service to something greater than ourselves but then you know, on a personality level. You're on your own. Yeah. (laughs) You're on your own, kid. (laughs) Exactly. So I I think I'm more integrated now than I have been in the past, but I still have to work at that. Have you ever, and it's interesting as you do so much with relationships and and responsibility, have you ever worked with people on shyness? Because it's a very paralyzing thing for a lot of people. Yeah. Well, Claire and I co-taught Feminine Power, which was, I think, probably... We were talking about that this morning, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. So so I think... Um, I think we probably inadvertently worked on because a lot of a lot of us as women do have a fear of being visible. I think we're carrying kind of the collective fear of... Um, you know, of, of witch hunts and all sorts of ways that women have been punished for living out loud and being bold and being brave. So um, that is a part of our collective legacy is to stand fully in our power and to speak truth as we know truth to be and to take our rightful place in the world. These are all bold things to do. So in that regard, yes. What is your best worst day you've ever had? Like that day that in the moment you're like, oh God, and now you're like, no, that was the best thing that could have happened to me. Oh, there's a lot of them, right? Um, probably, I'll tell you, you know, because my breakup was with Mark was so contained and so kind, it was sad because it's always sad to choose to dissolve a marriage. But the breakup didn't devastate me. And so the, but conscious uncoupling is written from a place where I'm like in the center of hell with people, because I think breakups are one of the worst traumas we'll ever have to go through. And I knew that place because of a breakup in my past. Interesting. That was like, to me, that was the worst thing that had ever happened was that breakup. 
And yet it has informed so much of my work and my my capacity to understand the depths of suffering that people are in in a breakup are directly related to that experience. And so I would have to say that that was it. That's incredible. That's actually really interesting to know that a lot of the emotion that you related to was from a separate relationship. Different. Yeah. Yeah. So the conscious uncoupling is kind of a blend of Several breakups, actually. Plus, <laughs> so many. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that's funny, you mentioned it earlier when you came in, but what I love about you, having we traveled to Israel together, so we were on a trip together, mm-hmm. you always have a notebook and you're always writing. And is that about trying to remember things, which I'm sure part of, or is your brain just constantly taking in? Like, are there, is just so much going? What is it for you? Because I love that about you. Oh, it's one of my favorite. <laughs> Works. Like I always can see Catherine like writing and I'm, I think I went up to you once. I'm like, did you write that stuff down? Can you send it to me? Oh, you did. That's Remember? Right. Because That's it's, right. you were always prepared and ready, but I like that. So what is it for you? And when did it I start? I think I process by writing. It's interesting. It's very hard for me to write a book beforehand and to the, the book proposals are hard for me. And I'm working on a book proposal now because this next one, I want to write a book proposal for it because they're, they organize all your yeah. thoughts and stuff. But the truth about writing for me is that it's an emergent wisdom, mm-hmm. and I don't always know what I'm going to say beforehand. So that the so writing itself that in, right? is processing the information. And sometimes what I will end up writing is new and it's like a brand new thought. And I won't even know it until the end of the sentence. And I look back and I go, wow, that's fresh. And I hadn't really consciously known that before. So I have some relationship with writing that's really a deep, deep, deep part of my path. And one of my biggest practices that I can share with people too is, you know, we have, we, we all know about the morning pages and God bless Julia Cameron. She was so wonderful to come up with that in her book, Artist's Way. Um, however, I think sometimes with morning pages, we just kind of throw up the complaint and then leave it there. So what I tend to do, one of my practices in the morning, particularly if I wake up and I'm anxious and I kind of wake up on the wrong side of the bed, is to write everything that I'm anxious, everything that, and I write it literally like, dear God, so this is what's happening for me today. I'm worried about that and I'm afraid of this and I don't know about this and what do you think about that and, and oh gosh, I think I really messed that up and what do I do about that? So all the things that I'm just kind of obsessively worried about. And then I say, you know, please write through my pen. Thank you very much. And then I write a dear Catherine letter from a different plate of myself immediately after. And I listen from a different place in myself. And it's that place of deep listening where I have that mystical connection. And I will write a letter from God or from higher self or however we want to call it. And I swear that it's the main part of my learning. That's a, it's, that's beautiful. And because it shows you that we do have the answers within, you just have to search and ask, but it's, I also love that because you're giving people, you know, people assume you probably have it all together, that you don't ever wake up anxious, that you don't ever wake up with questions. So it's nice to say, no, I do, but I do the work and I have a practice that helps me assimilate that and work from it. So it's, you're still practicing what you preach, which is great. Yeah. Well, and I will say that there is reward to that kind of devotion to practice because I used to have a lot of fear in my life. I remember about 20 years ago being at a wedding and having so much anxiety. And it, it was like a, a fresh thought in my mind. I thought, gosh, I wonder if I could ever be free of this anxiety. I wonder if I could actually stop being afraid. 
And I remember that it was a moment. Like I remember the room and where I was and what I was wearing and who was in the room when I had that moment. Because in the moment of asking the question, I got curious about that and I took that on. And I will say that fear does not characterize my life today. That I definitely feel calm most of the time. And that if I feel anxious, usually it's because I'm off course in some way. I'm procrastinating something that needs to happen. Um, or there's something in the field between myself and another person that's not clear yet, that they're not being authentic about. Something needs to change. So the, in other words, the anxiety is information. Yeah, and it's, I can it's trust a signal it. for you. It's a yeah. signal. I can trust it now. It's not pathological. Because you've worked on it so much, you yeah. understand it. Now so anxiety is there, it's yeah. part of, but it, you understand what it's about And for I you. just want people to know that practice works. That we have better relationships, we have more fun in life, we have a better life, like practice actually works. And the most important time to do the practice is when everything's falling apart. And that tends to be when we stop talking to God. And that's when everyone abandons everything. Right. But that's the time that we need to do it because we have to make empowered meaning of our dark nights of the soul and see what's trying to be born in us and cultivated in us. That's so beautiful. And I want to end there because I think that's such great advice. And I think... Everyone, as you hear, practice, but I do really, I mean, first of all, it's so intellectually stimulating talking to you, but also the fact that you really are bearing your soul. Like you've gone through this stuff, which is where you've gotten these answers and you can help provide for others. So that's really beautiful. Thank you. It's so thank honor. you. Well, I'm so excited about that. You know, I just turned 60 and, um, and she doesn't look a day over say 50 that for to sure. anybody, but I'm like in this state of like, wow, you know, I've just learned so much. I've been through so much and now I get to contribute that and I feel inspired and grateful. And so I'm just, you know, we're, we're kind of reinventing age. You know, we forget that even 400 years ago, people died under 40. I know. I think about that every, I do think about that. We're really on new territory here. I'm like a senior citizen. Well, and that, and that goes back to, and that goes back to, you know, happy even after, like, because we have this fantasy still about happy ever after, but the majority of us will not meet one person, marry them and stay with them for life. So we have to, you know, we have to learn how to cultivate the qualities that we will need and, and future generations will lead, need given the current circumstances of our lives. So, okay. I'm, I need to, you're trying to bring closure. No, not at all. I like, I, no, not, it, that's, it's amazing. <laughs> and I could keep talking to you, but I do. It's me too, Tal. You're, you're awesome. Thank you so no, much. I love you, you. Thank you. I love you too. Okay. Now this is Catherine's personal practice where she's going to lead us in an intention setting meditation. So just want to invite you, if you're in a place where it's safe for you to do so, to close your eyes and take a deep breath. As so how you could breathe all the way down into your hips. And just moving into a place of deep listening and receptivity. As if you could open your inner eyes and listen with your inner ears. And just becoming aware of all of the feelings and sensations in your body. Noticing where you might be holding any tension. And when you find it, just letting it go. And with each breath, just softening into a space of deep 
Letting go, know that you are being held by a force and field of life greater than you that is always leading you and guiding you to your greatest good. And just allowing yourself to become deeply present to the desire that you have for your own love life, whether that's to be closer with your partner, to be happier in that relationship, whether it's to create a relationship, or whether it's to bring conscious completion that is kind and compassionate to the relationship that you're in, just become present to your deepest desire and just naming it for yourself. And actually turning that desire into an intention. This shall be so. I set an intention to be deeply happy in love. I set an intention to call in the best relationship for me in this lifetime. I set an intention to consciously complete this relationship with love. I set an intention to fall in love with myself as a foundation for healthy relationships everywhere. Just taking a moment right now to name an intention that you can set for your love life. And allowing yourself to expand your awareness to recognizing life now as your partner in bringing this future to fruition. And just asking this question of life, what would I need to give up in order to be the version of myself I would need to be to fulfill this future? What would I need to give up? What would I need to let go of? What would I need to surrender completely in order to allow the fruition of this vision to come to me? And just listen for the answer. And what would I need to embrace or cultivate within myself in order to become the person I'd need to be to receive the fruition of this vision? What would I need to learn, take on developing, begin to embrace fully?
And now just imagining that you already have the fulfillment of this vision. Imagine that in this moment you are already full, you are already free, you are already happy, you are already whole. Notice how you breathe. Notice how you might walk through the world. Having the fulfillment of this intention already, right now. Notice the self that you are inside of having this already, right now. Notice what you feel. And begin to allow this self of your future to become the self of your present. So that you anchor this sense of yourself in your day, each and every day. And continue this practice of asking the universe, what would I need to let go of? And what would I need to embrace to find your way home to this future? And we take a deep breath of gratitude and say thank you to all of life that we have this beautiful gift where we can co-create with the universe. And so it is. And so it shall be. Ten Talks is produced by Mike Burns, Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, and music is by Alex Fetter. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks Podcast, and join us there.